Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that when we sin, it breaks our fellowship with the Lord, and it hinders the ongoing sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit. But when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to confess, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that at the end of a busy day, we can take time to uh, relax and be refreshed by the study of your word, that we can put our attention upon that which has eternal value, that we can learn the doctrines of Scripture in such a way that it enables us to look at the events around us, the events of history, and the uh, trends of history and in our culture so that we can understand what is happening, why it is happening from a divine viewpoint perspective. Now, Father, as we study these things, help us to uh, concentrate, to focus, to get our attention off of the details of life that surround us and put our attention on your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going through this passage in Genesis 49, which is Jacob's prophecy to his 12 sons. And this lays out the general trends of history in terms of these tribes and tends to emphasize certain weaknesses, certain failures, certain flaws within those tribes. So we've come down to about verse 17, which is where we stopped last time working it out in history. So let's just sort of catch that context in Genesis 49, 16, and 17, and then we'll kind of review a little bit and end up where we stopped last time in Judges chapter 14. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path, that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Uh, I pointed out last time that when we look at this first line, Dan shall judge his people, this is not the the Hebrew verb shafat, which is the verb form of the noun used in the book of Judges. The book of Judges uses the phrase shoftim, which is the plural of the of the noun for judges, shofet, and the shofetim uh, is the term for all the different judges, and shafat, shofet, shofetim, these are the words that are used for judging in the book of Judges. Now, if you've never studied the book of Judges, that is a great book to study, and uh, it focuses on these leaders that God raised up who are sort of a combination of military leaders, tribal leaders, uh, prophets. Deborah was a prophetess and a judge. 
They are, uh, uh, they're, they're leaders, political leaders. They exercise uh, decision-making in terms of con- uh, handling conflict. That's the idea in Shafat. But that's not the word that, that is used here. Some people make the mistake and automatically uh, leap. Shafat's a broad term, okay? A more narrow term that focuses on sort of a subcategory of the broader Shafat is the word deen, which is the word we do find in Genesis 49:16, and it's a word that focuses more on the bringing of justice, making decisions where people are contending with one another, where there is strife, that kind of a thing. Uh, as I point out here in both of these slides, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament down at the bottom, this word has the idea of pleading one's cause. So the focus here is not on on leadership in terms of ruling. Now, see, the reason that's important is because there are those who have come along over the history of the interpretation of this prophecy for Dan, and they take this as a rulership word, which is what Shaphat would be, but it's not Shaphat. They take this as a ruler concept, and then when they get into the next verse in verse 17, talking about the serpent, uh, they, they apply that to Satan, and eventually they end up with an interpretation that uh, the Antichrist comes from the tribe of Dan. And you may have heard that, you hear that here or there, but it's just based on a faulty analysis of the Hebrew and also of some things in, in Revelation because the Antichrist doesn't come uh, out of a Jewish tribe. The Antichrist comes out of the uh, Gentile nations. He is the prince of the people who is to come, and the people who is to come in Daniel chapter 9 were the Romans who destroyed the temple in AD 70. So he is a Gentile. He's the beast that comes out of the sea in Revelation. That is a Gentile uh, imagery there for the sea. So Dan is not the tribe from which the Antichrist comes. So we just want to kind of lay that to rest. Here's a map that we looked at when we went on to talk about the fact that as we look at how the tribe of Dan goes into the land, their tribal allotment is here in this sort of an L-shaped, aqua-colored, or actually on the screen it's a green color, uh, uh, L, and that is the tribal allotment between, sort of between Jerusalem and Joppa. Joppa is the area that is now surrounded by a major modern city known as Tel Aviv. So this is the uh, area where Dan was supposed to have his uh, tribal allotment. He never conquered it, as we learned from looking at Judges chapter 1. And eventually, as we'll study tonight, Dan, the tribe of Dan sends a reconnaissance team up to the northern portion of the land, up here where you see the, the city of Dan located in the very northern part, up in the tribal allotment of Naphtali, and the old Canaanite name of that city was Laish. And the, they come back to, after their reconnaissance patrol, they come back to the uh, main tribe in the south, and they say, we can, we can take it. We can defeat them, and we can conquer that particular area and make that our home since we can't drive out the Canaanites in the area that uh, God is, was, was going to give us. The reason they couldn't drive out the Canaanites was because they lacked faith. They, this tribe is a tribe that completely fails spiritually. They are they go into apostasy very early. They stay in apostasy, and they become a source 
of idolatry coming into the uh, nation Israel and idolatry coming into the northern kingdom at a very early stage during the time of the Judges. We'll look at that tonight in Judges chapter uh, chapters 17 and 18. <clears throat> Judges 134 is the verse that talks about the Amorites defeating them, not letting them come down uh, into the valley. Now, one other point on the interpretation of Genesis 49:17 is that there's been two views that have generally been set forth in trying to analyze this passage. One focuses on this imagery of the serpent. First word is Nahash, which is the same word used for the serpent in Genesis 3 for Satan. And so it looks at this, this imagery here uh, not so much in a satanic way, but looks on it more as uh, in terms of military strategy that a serpent lies uh, camouflaged along the path and so it, it defeats a, a larger, superior enemy through uh, stealth and cunning. And that is the emphasis that they put on this. And so they'll say, hmm, this must have been fulfilled with Samson because Samson was one against many and he had to use stealth and cunning. I disagree with that. I think Samson's basically God's bull in a china closet. And we'll see that. He, God is just using Samson to stir up a lot of trouble among the uh, Philistines. I don't see anything that relates to stealth and cunning in, in Samson, if we understand that. I think that the best understanding of this passage uh, focuses on this idea of uh, the serpent is a representative of Satan. The first line uses the word Nahash. The second uses uh, Sipipone, which is a term for uh, a viper, a poisonous uh, snake, possibly a horn snake, that was uh, <coughs> extremely um, uh, poisonous that would bite the horse's heels. Now, when was the last time we saw a snake and heel in the same passage? Genesis 3. 3, uh, 15, 16, where God says the seed of the woman will step on the, uh, crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will uh, bite the seed of the woman on the heel. So the imagery here, by the use of those two words, takes us right back to the Proto-Evangelium there in uh, Genesis 3.15. Now, we see the identification of the serpent in Revelation 12.9, as the dragon, the devil, Satan, the serpent of old. So this connects things together. This imagery is consistent uh, throughout the Scripture. Well, we, we surveyed, surveyed Dan, the history of the tribe of Dan in the conquest, that they were a, a fairly numerous tribe, second only to Judah, but they failed to take the land, and they failed to take the land even though they were more numerous then any other tribe except for Judah, they failed to take the land. They failed to conquer the Amorites because they failed to trust God. They're the last tribe mentioned in the catalog of conquests in Judges chapter 1, and they just failed to make it happen because of their uh, spiritual failure. Now, when we get into the book of, <coughs> of, of Judges, there are two episodes that relate to the tribe of Dan, and the first has to do with Samson. Samson is perhaps the most famous uh, member of the Dan family. And so we started looking at Samson last week in 
Judges chapter uh, 13. In chapter 13, verse 2, we read that his father was from the village of Zorah, the family of the Danites. His father's name was Manoah. So God raises, is going to promise to Manoah and to his wife, the angel of the Lord is going to appear to the mother who's left nameless. Now, I can really get bogged down in detail going through Samson because there's a lot of interesting things going there. Samson is at the bottom of the line. There are several judges in the book of Judges. You start with Othniel, and then you go to Ehud, and then Deborah and Barak, and then Gideon, and then Jephthah, and then Samson. Those are your major judges. And the first one, Othniel, starts off, nothing negative is said about him, and then you get down to Samson, and almost nothing positive is said about him. There is a deterioration that takes place. And the imagery that you have to understand that controls the book of Judges, the theme that controls the book of Judges, is what's articulated in chapter 17, verse 6, which is in the in the next section we'll look at tonight, that there was no king in Israel, that is, no authority, there's no monarch, there's no Davidic monarch, Saul's not king, but above and beyond that, God isn't recognized by the people as their king. So because there's no absolute authority in the land, it's all relativism. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, and that affects the leadership as well as the people. People tend to get the leaders that mirror or reflect their values. And just you can just apply that to the United States today. It doesn't take a whole lot of uh, thought or application to recognize that we get exactly the leaders that we deserve, and they reflect all the cultural flaws and failures and some of the uh, positive aspects of our, of our culture. But in the most part, it's pretty negative. And that's one reason we have so many problems with so many people in public office is because they come out of the cesspool of the postmodern relativistic culture that is contemporary, the contemporary United States. And as long as we continue to uh, wallow in this cesspool, this culture is just going to get uh, and create more and more of a stench because of their moral relativism. The same kind of thing was going on in Israel. It was so bad that when, when God's going to raise up a leader to deliver them, and he really doesn't raise up Samson to deliver them because Samson doesn't. He's the the last judge mentioned in the book of Judges, but he's the only judge that doesn't bring peace to the land. He's the only judge that doesn't uh, deliver them. He just stirs up a tremendous amount of trouble. He's the most pagan of the judges, and that's what the writer Judges is trying to do, is show the process of how a culture becomes paganized. At the beginning of the book of Judges, the, the nation is spiritually together. They have, they're at the top of their game. They have just defeated the uh, people at Jericho. They've defeated the city of Ai. They have defeated the major strongholds in the south. Caleb conquered uh, Hebron. They've defeated the tribal uh, alliance in the north. But they come off their game because they start to compromise with the people who lived in the land, they begin to compromise, and they instead of giving 100% obedience to God and slaughtering all every man, woman, child, baby, cow, and goat, lamb in the land, they decide they're going to uh, 
have a policy of appeasement and they're going to uh, coexist with these uh, spiritual enemies. And what happens is, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians uh, 16, bad company corrupts good morals, and so they become corrupted by the uh, human viewpoint pagan culture around them. Now, Israel has gone through several cycles where they've degenerated into idolatry. By the time you get to Samson, it's the sixth cycle of degeneration. And for the sixth time, sixth time, they've done evil in the sight of the Lord. And for the sixth time, God has punished them. But unlike the other six times now, when they come to, or, or the other five times, when they come to this time, they don't cry out to God. There is no call on the people to send to deliver as we have seen. They aren't ready for it. They don't have any capacity. They have completely compromised. And part of this is because for the first time in this cycle of foreign oppression or foreign conquest, let's say, they are not being maltreated and abused by the Philistines. See, the Philistines were originally a homogenous ethnic group that were made up of descendants from Ham, and they came out of Kaftor. But in the centuries just prior to uh, the, this period, which is about the 12th century or so uh, B.C., just prior to this, you had the incursion of several uh, groups of migratory Greek sea peoples. That's what they're usually called in the literature. This is the same time you have the battle for Troy taking place and things like that. So these Greeks who are Japhitic are coming in along the coast, and they're colonizing entire Sidon, they come down, colonize with the Philistines, and they're assimilating with them. And so the, uh, <clears throat> the, the Philistines have had their ethnic purity uh, diluted by uh, the Greek sea people. So they've become a melting pot. And as a melting pot, they have become multicultural. And this has generated an assimilationist mentality among the Philistines. So they're just openly accepting everybody. Live and let live. We're going to, you're going to worship Yahweh. We're going to worship Dagon. Everybody's going to kind of live together. And so they're not <clears throat> trying to destroy the Jews. They're trying to assimilate them. And the Jews are just walking into the compromise trap. And they're willing to give up their distinctiveness and their freedom. And just for the sake of universal brotherhood and world peace... And our time, they're willing to just intermarry with the Philistines. That's one of the things you see with Samson. He's always got his eyes after some uh, Philistine young woman that he's that he's chasing because there's no sense left anymore that the Jews shouldn't intermarry with the Canaanites, which was specifically prohibited by the Mosaic law. So what's happened is in a setup where there is this trend towards assimilation, this trend toward uh, moral relativism, where every truth is good, all truth is God's truth, your truth, your religion, everything's fine, let's all just get together, and everything is, is 
about to destroy the distinctiveness of Israel, God is sending Samson not to deliver them, but to create a thorn in the flesh for the Philistines to stop the assimilationist process. He's sending Samson into the situation to be in a to be a bull in a china closet and to stir up the antagonism between the Philistines and the Jews so that the intermarriage and the assimilation process is going to break down. Uh, Samson is no great spiritual giant. He does trust God at a key point at the end, but his life is uh, dominated by apostasy, by degeneracy. He's a womanizer. I mean, there's a whole theme in Judges about how the more pagan a culture becomes, the more objectified women become. And that's one of the reasons the the, the mother, and later on he has a, um, well, he has a wife, young Philistine girl he's going to marry, and then later on a, a Philistine prostitute. They're never named. The only woman that's named in the whole episode is Delilah. So the women are just pictured as just secondary uh, window dressing to the whole story, which is part of the point is that in a pagan culture, women are no longer the helpmates and the important and the important position God originally uh, sets them up up to be. So God, uh, it doesn't desert Israel at all during this episode. He sends them uh, Samson. It's just God's grace. God's grace is not based upon how good we are or on how bad we are. It's based upon his plan. And God is going to deal extremely graciously with with Israel because the principle under grace is that God is going to deal with you not on the basis of who and what you are, but on who he is and what Christ did on the cross. And that's it. It never has anything to do with our <clears throat> our attractiveness to God, either before salvation or after salvation. Because we're just as corrupt, just as sinful, just as degenerate in our sin nature after salvation as we are before. When we get saved and we're regenerated, it doesn't diminish, it doesn't minimize, it doesn't take away our sin nature. We are, in, we are new creatures in Christ. We have had a human spirit generated in us, but there's no spiritual growth. If there's no acquisition of biblical truth, there can't be any growth. And that's why we see in our world today a degenerate, apostate, emotion-driven, uh, postmodern, relativistic, evangelical Christianity is because they are just as screwed up as the rest of the culture because that's what they came out of. And they don't know any truth. They don't know any doctrine. And you go to the, the 30 largest uh, churches in this country, and there's not a thimble full of doctrine in the whole group. It's because they've all been affected by the paganism of their culture, just like we have in the book of Judges. And that's the point. But God deals with us in grace and gives us a whole lot more than we deserve. Why? Not because we of who we are, but because of his plan and because all these paganized, relativistic, emotion-driven Christians are still saved and they possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it's that perfect righteousness of Christ that was imputed to them at salvation that is always the basis of blessing. It's never based on who we are or what we have done. That is pure, raw legalism. And if you don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith, and it's amazing, 
I was talking with uh, someone, just a pastor, just the other day, and uh, he works. This particular individual works with works within a more of a mainline situation, and he just amazed how many people sitting around talking to people in the church have no clue what justification by faith is. It is a doctrine that is not taught or understood anymore in our culture. People do not understand. I don't know who I was talking to. I was talking to Tommy. He was talking about his class at, at college. He had to just quit teaching eschatology and spend a whole hour just teaching justification by faith because when he asked the question of about a, you know, 25 kids in the class, college kids all come out of you know, Baptist churches and Bible churches and supposedly been exposed to the Bible all their life, there were only two or three that had even had a vague idea that they thought they knew what justification by faith was, and they didn't know what it was. And if you don't understand justification by faith alone, you will never understand salvation. You will never understand grace. You will never understand what God has for you in the post-salvation life because you're too busy trying to impress God with all your work, all your effort, everything you've done, and it's never what we do. It's always what Christ did and who he is. And that's why Samson is a story of this just degenerate, womanizing, rebellious, spiritually apostate individual. And yet God deals with him in magnificent grace because God's plan is greater than his negative volition. God's plan, God was working something in Israel. And what we don't see in the book of Judges is that at the same time Samson is wiping out the Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Uh, Samuel is growing up in the temple, being trained, being prepared to be the positive judge, the last of the judges, the last uh, judge, prophet, uh, priest before the monarchy is established. So it's a fabulous story and fabulous setup here. And we looked at the birth of Samson last time and pointed out that there's that he was a Nazarite from birth. And as a Nazarite from birth, there were three parts to that Nazarite vow. The first part is that he was not allowed to touch wine, grape juice, vine, vineyard. He couldn't go anywhere near a, a anything that was the product of of the vine. Second, he couldn't touch a dead body of any kind, not just human. Third, he couldn't cut his hair because the the hair was the external sign that everybody could look at to see that he was uh, uh, had, had, was under a Nazarite vow. I mean, you, you couldn't tell whether he had ever touched a body or not, or if he had you know had a couple of glasses of wine last night. But if that hair got cut, that's why that's such an important issue because that is the observable evidence of his Nazarite vow. The other two things people may or may not ever see him sneak back behind uh, you know the house somewhere and uh, have a, a nip of wine. But they would know what happened. That's why when he finally gets his hair cut, that's when the the Holy Spirit takes his strength away from him. So that's important to understand that because of the way the writer weaves these things together. And we looked at last time how first thing we see of Samson as a emotion-driven, unstable, self-centered teenager who is totally focused on 
making sure his own desires and his own lust are satisfied. He meets this uh, young Philistine hottie down in um, Timnah, and he comes back and demands from his parents that they go down and make him uh, and get her for him as a wife. And see, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, we read, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, that is, with the Canaanites. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So Samson is already well down uh, this path. He never once puts his lust or directs his attention to a, a young Israelite maiden. His focus is always on uh, the Philistine girls. Now, this is the same principle of separation. It's not based on race. It's based on spiritual orientation. God didn't say the Philistines are bad. You don't intermarry with the Gentiles because they're Gentiles, but because they're pagan, because they have wrong spiritual beliefs. Same principle applies in the New Testament, where Paul states in 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be bound together with unbelievers For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? The point is that you need to train your children to make sure that their relationships from the very beginning are with believers. Uh, You know, when I was when I was a kid, uh, if I came home and I had a new friend, the first question my mother asked me was, "Are they a believer?" which meant that I had to know the answer to that question. I learned that very quickly. By the time I was five or six years old, I knew, okay, if I'm going to go home and I've got a new friend, I've got to know where they stand spiritually. Well, that started teaching me about evangelism, and and, and one way that played off is I had a friend. His name was Robert. My name was Robert. We were in second grade together at uh, Lovett Elementary School, and we became friends. He lived down the street from me, and we became friends because we had the same first name. And I, uh, you know, that's how kids are. And very early on, I made sure he was a believer. I mean, within the first two or three days that we were hanging around together, I made sure he was a believer. Let me tell you how this pays off. Twenty-five years later, he called me up. We hadn't seen or talked to each other in about ten years. And twenty-five years later, he called me up. I was living in Tomball at the time and said, hey, I want to take you out to the Renaissance Festival. Now, I had no desire to go to the Renaissance Festival, but I hadn't seen him in a while. I said, sure, we'll, we'll spend the day together. So we went out there. We had fun. On the way back, he said, well, one of the reasons I wanted to get together with you is I, I just want to make sure I'm going to go to heaven. I said, well, I know you're going to go to heaven because when you were seven years old, I said, asked you if you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you said, yes. And he said, well, I, I've, always, I've always thought that. So I gave him some books. We talked about some things. And but, see, that gave me, uh, you know, a solid basis for dealing with something that you have no idea where things are going to go 25 years later. I also know that when I got into high school and started dating, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to ask so-and-so to go to a movie, I know the first thing my mother was going to ask me was, are they a believer? Okay, so that resolved a lot of issues and headed things off the path. See, the problem with parents is they don't start training their kids on certain things until it's too late. You wait till they're seven or eight. You wait to teach your kids about not getting involved with unbelievers until they're in high school. 
Your kid's going to marry an unbeliever, going to marry a Catholic, going to marry somebody, and they're going to have all kinds of problems for the rest of their life. You start when they're about one day old, and you don't stop. It's a rigorous procedure to be a parent. It's not for the lazy. So you just have to drill those things into them, establish those policies from day one, and it, it, it will make a difference. Well, Samson's parents didn't do that. And he's out chasing, uh, chasing these women. So he's, uh, <clears throat> on the way down there, he doesn't go down with, with his parents. He goes his own way. As I pointed out last time, he gets, uh, attacked by a young lion. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now this isn't for spirituality. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer had nothing to do with their spiritual growth. It had everything to do with empowering them to be leaders, administrators, prophets, somehow within that leadership role with the nation. But it didn't have anything to do with their, with their uh, spiritual growth, their spiritual maturity. It's not like the filling of the Spirit or the indwelling of the Spirit in the New Testament. It is to give them a special enablement to carry out the task God has given them as a leader in the nation Israel. So this lion attacks him, and he just tears the lion apart in verse 6, and then he leaves the carcass there. Now, after some time, and it's not long, because all of this is in the courtship phase, and it's moving fairly rapidly according to the uh, directly proportionate to his his uh, lust pattern. And after a couple of weeks or so, he goes back to see her, and in verse 8 we read, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Now, this is a miraculous scenario. I don't know how many of you have ever taken the opportunity, I haven't, but I've, I've read enough, have ever taken the opportunity to observe the, the decomposition of a, of a body of an animal or a human being after death. It turns to liquid. It, it bloats up for a while, produces all kinds of gases, and then that gets released, and then it just sort of, it's a very wet, moist, bacteria, gross environment. That's not the environment where bees make their homes. Bees like a nice dry environment where they can build their hive and produce honey. So within a very short amount of time, something strange has happened here. This carcass basically dries out and is petrified in such a way that very rapidly Bees move in, create a hive, and produce a significant amount of money. So something miraculous has happened here. Uh, God's sort of baiting the trap to see if he's going to follow the second provision of the Nazarite vow. You're going to avoid a dead body. Well, he just wants to feed his pleasure. He's hungry. There's all this honey. And he just, you know, reaches down in there and grabs all that he can. And he hides it from his parents. He takes them the honey. And at the end of verse 9, see, he didn't tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So he's hiding it. He knows he shouldn't have done it, but he doesn't care. He wants to feed his uh, personal pleasure. He's just an emotion-driven guy who's living for the moment. He is so much a 21st century American. It is just unbelievable. This, is, this guy is like every person in this city. They just want what they want right now, and um, I'll deal with whatever happens later. It's, besides, nothing's going to happen. So 
that's his, uh, <clears throat> one of his flaws comes out there, and the writer of Hebrews makes this very clear. Then he sets up this little riddle to, because um, uh, all the, uh, the uh, girls' companions are, are going to try to uh, hook him into this deal where, and so he takes on the bet, and he says, I'll give you a riddle if you win. Uh, you, <clears throat> if you win, I'll give you 30 changes of clothing. If I win, you give it to me. And he sets up this riddle. But, see, he doesn't have a good track record with these women because they're subject to intimidation. And these, these um, 30 Philistine young men intimidate her. This is one of the earliest examples of a protection racket. We're going to, uh, we're going to protect you as long as you pay us off. And your payoff is you have to find out from what the, uh, what the meaning of the riddle is, or we will uh, burn you and your father's house with fire, and we will take, um, uh, take destroy everything that you have. So they, they learn very early on that this, the way to get to Samson is through a young woman. He, he's got this, this macho male thing going, where as long as it has to do with physical brawn, he can go out and do it. But he has no defenses whatsoever against the lust of the flesh and against uh, the wiles of a woman. And so she starts crying every day. And, you know, there's a lot of men who just don't have the objective stamina to stand up against a woman's tears. So uh, she cries and weeps. And finally, on the seventh day, he just gives up and gives her the answer. Now, so he loses. So now he has to pay off the bet and give them 30 sets of clothes. So the way he does it is he goes down to Ashkelon and he kills 30 Philistines, takes all their clothes to bring it back. And then we read at the end of verse 19, so his anger was aroused. And it, it constantly we see with, with Samson this, this emotion-driven uh, lust pattern going on. Then in chapter 15, which fits right into this whole flow, after a while, you know, a few weeks later, a couple of months later, not very long, it's the time of the wheat harvest. And Samson visits his wife. Well, what had happened before was that when he left, and he's all angry, and he's paid off these 30 guys with their clothes, her father married her to, to his best man. And so he's gone off in a huff, all emotional, and he comes back, finally calms down, and says, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get my wife. Well, her father's already married her off. So now he's going to get, get angry again. So God just is using him as this out-of-control, emotionally driven bull in a china closet. So now he gets angry again, and he goes out and he captures 300 foxes. Now, that's an interesting little feat. He, he must be, he either could devise really good traps or he could run fast. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us how, how he does it, but, and, and, and it, he's, he's able to control them. He ties their tails together. Now that must have been a lot of fun too. They're not the most docile of creatures. And then he puts a fiery torch in their tail. Now they must have just really stood still while he was doing that. When he set these torches on fire, he let them go through the standing grain, and this, I mean, this is great warfare here, tremendous technique, just to, to burn up all their crops uh, using what he has at hand. I mean, he's very creative at this. And it also goes, note, note the, at the end of verse 5, it says, he burned up all the shocks and standing grain as well as the what? The vineyard. See, there's these little things the writer puts in there to let you know he's just 
continuously in the presence of things he shouldn't be in the presence of. So the Philistines just get, again, get very aggravated with him, and he takes off to hide down in the, we'll put, see if I can find my map again, so that we can give you some idea of what the geography is here. I think it's the, no, it's not that slide. It will be slide four. There we go. He's da- he's come down. See, uh, Ashkelon was over here. All this this is a city of the plain right along here. This is the Gaza Strip today. For those of you who pay attention to what's going on in Israel in the news, you have Ekron and Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, uh, Gaza. This is the whole area of the the modern Gaza Strip where the Palestinians are now. Um, just a note, Palestinian, the term Palestinian does not derive from Philistine. Even though the Palestinians want you to think that, that's just part of their propaganda. The term Palestine doesn't derive from that at all. It derives from a Greek word. The Greeks were the ones who originally named the area uh, Pal- Palestine because palaio, which is a Greek word, is the verb for wrestling. Isaac, remember, was the wrestler who wrestled with God. And because it's Palestine sounded like Philistine, they thought it was a good pun. The, the Greeks love wordplays. So it, it had nothing to do with the Philistines. It was uh, the land of the wrestler. Okay, so Samson's down here hiding out in, uh, in the hill country of Judah, somewhere down in, in this area. And <clears throat> the... There's 3,000 men of Judah. Now, this is, this is a small army. Comes searching for him. Now, they don't want to organize themselves with him. They want to convince him to give up and go over to the enemy. See how modern the Jews sound. They, they, they're into appeasement. Now, don't rock the boat. Don't take a stand for anything. Just just let's all get along and, and let's not fight and let's not go to war because when you succumb to moral relativism, there's nothing uh, absolute anymore. Uh, everything and every culture and every belief is relative and everybody has their own views. It's equally valid. You have... You think it's white, that's fine. They think it's red, that's fine. Somebody else thinks it's blue. Let's just all be happy with whatever we, whatever we say. See, moral relativism erodes any sense of ultimate, ultimate standards and any kind of objective truth. And it, relativism means that everything is equally true. Well, if everything is equally true, everything is equally false. And when everything is, can be equally true or equally false, then there, nothing is worth fighting for anymore. Nothing's worth living for anymore. When, when, nothing is a, it, when you don't have any high virtues, high standards to achieve, then uh, it's just about feeding your own pleasure. And the only thing that we can hold in common then is just experience. So let's all get together, hold our hands, sing Kumbaya, and talk about what a wonderful time it is to be a Christian, and all we're doing is emoting. If you don't have anything worth dying for, you don't have anything worth living for. And the only thing that's worth living for in a relativistic society is whatever you want to do at that particular moment. It's all driven by what I want right now, whatever is going to stimulate uh, my flesh right now. 
So <clears throat> another aspect of this is if nothing is worth dying for, then the great sin is someone who says there is something worth dying for and he fights for it. See, that's where we are in our culture today. We have a war against radical Islamic fascists, and we live in a culture where nobody thinks it's worth fighting for anymore. And they've forgotten what happened on 9-11. That doesn't matter to anybody anymore. That's ancient history. You have 14 and 15-year-olds today that were 7 or 8 years old when that took place, and they have no, no, in another seven years, they're going to be in college, and that's going to be ancient history. It's going to be as relevant to them as the Korean War is to most of you. It was something that happened before they were conscious of it, so it really is just, it's just something they learn about in the history books. So in our time, as it was in their time, if there's nothing worth fighting for, then let's just be pacifists. Let's just give up. Let's just all get along. And that is the path to enslavement. And this is what happens under the Philistines. You have real arms control introduced by the Philistines. The Philistines had iron weapons. And we learn in First Samuel that the Philistines prevented the Jews from having blacksmiths. It was illegal to have a blacksmith. You couldn't even register your blacksmith. Come on, get with me here. You couldn't even register your blacksmith. You couldn't have a you couldn't have a concealed carry permit for your blacksmith. They took all the blacksmiths out of the land so nobody could have a weapon that was superior to anything that a Philistine had. And the lesson is if the people in the land, the people in a country, the citizens of the country do not have equal firepower at their disposal to that that the state has, then they will be under the thumb of the government. See, the reason every citizen has the right to possess firearms is to protect themselves from the tyranny of the government. But when government troops can come in with automatic weapons and all you have is a single-shot pop gun, 22, you can't defend yourself against a, a, an M16 or AK-47 or, or an M60 machine gun or anything like that. So citizens have to have, be, have equal access to the same level of firepower that any, any government uh, police officer. Just think about what happened in Waco with David Koresh. Think about uh, Elian Gonzalez and uh, what the uh, Justice Department did with him. They're just seizing these, these people totally without due process uh, of, of law and... Uh, they don't have the weaponry to defend themselves. So anyway, I'm getting off track there. But that's how the Philistines controlled the, the, the uh, Israelites. And so God sends in Samson and gives him supernatural weapons. So we go on to read how he defeats the, uh, the, the Philistines here. Uh, he has this negotiation with the pacifists from Judah and they convince him that, okay, we're going to bind you, and then we're going to deliver you into the hands of the Philistines. See, if we get rid of the people who have any connection to absolutes and it's to fighting for something, then we can all have peace. We can have peace in our time. Take you back to uh, Neville Chamberlain in Munich. Well, God has a different plan, and as he takes him back, he's all trussed up. 
the Spirit of God comes upon him and the ropes are broken. The Spirit of God does that. Samson doesn't flex his muscles and pop them. The Spirit of, the, the Spirit of God is the one who causes the bonds to break loose. And then Samson finds a new weapon. He finds a fresh jawbone. See, the writer is making it very clear that even though the, the Spirit of God isn't related to spirituality, because what's the first thing that he does? He grabs the wrong kind of weapon. A fresh jawbone means that, you know, a dry jawbone is going to be better than a fresh jawbone. A fresh jawbone means that it has been, it's recent. It's still moist. It's still a part of a carcass. And once again, he's violating the second uh, vow in the Nazarite vow. And he grabs uh, this jawbone of an ass and and uh, reaches out and kills a thousand men with it. And then he's so impressed with himself that he writes a little uh, pop chorus about it to make sure that everybody learns about his his glorious deeds. But in the midst of that, even when he, you know, we I kind of poke fun at him, even when he's got all this pagan relativism and everything else going on, he's still not oblivious to the fact that his source of strength comes from God. And so he, he gets very thirsty, cries out to the Lord in verse 18, You've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall in the hand of the uncircumcised. He's blaming God, but at least there's a recognition that God's there. He's, he's like Jephthah. He's bargaining. He's bartering with God. He's not unlike all kinds of Christians that we see today and all kinds of preachers that uh, we hear on TV and radio and in the halls of Congress who... Uh, who think that they know something about God, and it's just it's just superstitious paganism. And then we have a note in verse 20 that he judged Israel's 20 years in the days of the Philistines. But we don't have the note that he delivers or that he brings rest. And then he runs into Delilah. But before he runs into Delilah, there's this three-verse interlude there where he goes down to Gaza. Now, this is 45 miles from his home. His home is up here in the green area in, in Dan. And he goes 45 miles down to uh, Gaza. And there he sees a, a prostitute there. In the modern vernacular, he sees a hoe down there. Samson and the hoe. I do, I get a chuckle out of that. And... The Gazites are told that Samson's there, and they surround the place and lie in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. Now I'm going to have to find this other slide here and go down to the gate of the city right here. And that is what a gate looked like. There's a, there's a thick wall that is uh, probably 20 feet or more thick, and so you have three rooms there where uh, a guard would be, and then you have a large gate hung in the wall, and he has to, when he takes the gate, he's got to uh, defeat the troops that are guarding the gate, and then he has to pull the gate off of the gate post. This thing probably weighed close to a 1,000 pounds, and he hoists it up on his back, and then he carries it to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, let me go back to our map, because... You look at that and you say, well, how far away was Hebron? Well, Hebron is 45 miles away. You know, you, you, you may have diddy-bopped through the boonies with a 60-pound or 80-pound pack on your back when you were in the military, but this is a guy who's humping it uphill with a 1,000-pound gate on his back. 
Now, here's, uh, here's Hebron way over here. See? And here's Gaza. So he, he, he takes it through Eglon and Lachish and all the way over to Hebron. He's almost to the Dead Sea. What's, what's going on there? Well, it, the text really doesn't say, but it seems like he's trying to sucker the Philistines deep into the territory of Judah. Maybe to arouse their anger against Judah and force the men of Judah, who were pacifists in the last chapter, to finally take a stand. I don't know. The text really doesn't say. Well, after that, he uh, falls in love with Delilah. And that's a well-known story. The Philistines come to her and try to convince him to uh, <clears throat> to tell her where his strength lies. And he goes through various uh, attempts at, at uh, trying to say, "Well, it's this thing, and it's another thing." If you tie me up with with bows with uh, with uh, fresh bowstrings, then uh, that'll take away my strength and several other things. And finally, he breaks down. And he says it's his hair. So she shaves off his head, and the Philistines capture him. And the reason it's his hair, this is the culmination of a process, but God is also in control of what Samson's doing. And God knows what's going to happen, and that the purpose is to for Samson wasn't to deliver the people, but to create this turmoil to keep assimilation from taking place. So the Philistines capture him. They put out his eyes. And they, they shave his head and they put him in the prison and he becomes a grinder in the prison. I just love the old King James. Now that's not an organ grinder. That is a grain grinder. This is the lowest position. He's on KP duty in the prison. And he's blind and, and, but his hair begins to grow back. And this isn't mystical. This isn't superstitious. The, the hair is a sign of the vow. And when the hair grows back, God is making a point that those who are set apart to him are those he can use. And despite their their spiritual failure, because God uses us in a lot of ways irregardless of our flaws and failures and sins and carnality. That's what grace is all about. God doesn't say, well, you've got to grow up and be mature before I can use you. That's not grace. That's legalism. So it comes to a point where the Philistines decide to have a great victory supper and sacrifice to Dagon, their god. Well, God is going to make it a point that that Dagon doesn't have any power. That's what's going on here. He's not just saying, okay, Samson, I'm going to let you have one last shot at it. God's honor is at stake here. This is very similar to the same thing that happens in the temple of Dagon uh, in about a, a hundred or yeah, about a hundred years from this point. When the ark is captured in at the Battle of Aphek, about First Samuel chapter four, the ark is captured at the Battle of Aphek. The two sons of Samuel, Samson, or uh, Samuel, uh, not Samuel, two sons of Eli are killed, and the ark is taken and put by the Philistines in the temple of Dagon. The next morning they come in, and this big statue of a fish, which was Dagon, is lying down, bowing down to the ark of the covenant. So they're a little bit upset about that. So they stand the statue back up. And the next morning they come in and the statue's down and the hands and feet are cut off. Showing that, so they can't put him back up. He can't stand up anymore. And God is making a point and then he 
afflicts them with various tumors. I love the old King James with hemorrhoids. <laughs> Remember that? They had a plague of hemorrhoids. I always wanted to know what a plague of hemorrhoids was going to be like. That's just, but they're, they're, they're various, probably skin tumors. And, and they're, they're, everybody just has this, this horrible case of, of skin tumors and they've got to get rid of the, of uh, the Ark of the Covenant. That's just too hot to handle. Well, the same kind of thing is going on here. God's reputation is at stake. And so as they come together to offer the sacrifice to Dagon to give him credit for their victory, God has to wipe them out. And so they get all excited and they decide to have Samson come out and have him do a few tricks. And as he comes out, Samson um, is up by the pillars. Now, this must have been a large place. It reminds me somewhat of the uh, temple that we saw to, I think it was the temple to Diana that we saw at Jerish last year. It's quite large. Think about the, if you've ever seen pictures or been to the Parthenon in, in Athens, it is huge. But this place would hold 3,000 celebrants, and they're all having an orgy, and, and they're drunk, and they want to watch Samson perform, and they're up on the roof. And he leans up against these pillars and starts to knock them down. He prays, and uh, just like the bargaining of Jephthah, he says, Just one, one more time, God, just one more time, let me take vengeance on the Philistines. Verse 2, I see he's not concerned about the glory of God. He's concerned about, he's still self-absorbed, he's still driven by his own arrogance, but God has a broader picture. He's going to use Samson's carnality, and he, he just has a little bit of faith where he's trusting God to give him the strength. It's mixed up with a lot of other uh, self-absorbed notions, but God is going to strengthen him because this will show that God's power is greater than the power of the false gods. And so Samson says, let me die with the Philistines, and he topples all of the pillars, and the dead that he kills at his death were more than he had killed in all of his life. And so this brings honor and glory to God because he could only do this through the power of God, and it demonstrates God's power over the power of the Philistines. Now that's Samson. We didn't get into the next episode which also has to do with the tribe of Dan, and this is Judges 17 and 18. We'll come back and talk about that next time where we talk about uh, Micah and the apostate Levitical priests. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that, that your grace is all-sufficient, and your grace is not based on who we are or what we do. It's based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. It's based on your character not on our character. It's based on the imputed righteousness that we have from Christ, not on, not on our behavior. It's based on your plan, your desires, not ours. Father, we pray that we might be encouraged also by the fact that despite our flaws and failures, uh, we can be used mightily by you in the same way that Samson was and that Samson found his way into the Hebrews 11 uh, Hall of Faith because he did trust you at key points despite his uh, self-absorption, arrogance, and paganism. He still trusted you at key points, and that gives us uh, hope and confidence and encouragement. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.